This episode is sponsored by Nor Shipping, the must-attend place to be for networking, knowledge sharing, and building partnerships. And it's your arena for ocean solutions. Nor Shipping is taking place at Lillestrom and Oslo, Norway from the 6th to the 9th of June. This is Green Seas, the podcast by Tradewinds about the environment and the business of the ocean. I'm Eric Priante-Martin, and today we're going to talk about a data gap that's as massive as the ocean itself. There's a good chance that you're like me. Well, in at least one way. You can do this. After driving not far from your home, you can sit and look out over the ocean. Even if you can't, you're listening to a podcast about the business of the ocean, so it may be linked to your livelihood. And even if that's not the case, you get 50% of the oxygen you breathe from the ocean, which also absorbs a quarter of the world's carbon dioxide and the vast majority of the heat that it traps. And that's why it might be a surprise to hear from people like Tim Jansen about how little we actually know about the ocean. By training, Jansen is an oceanographer who spent much of his adult life focused on how the seas interact with the atmosphere. He does other things too, and we're going to get to that later. But right now, I want to focus on the way he describes the ocean data gap that we're talking about today. If you, if you think about you know, what we do as humanity quite well nowadays, it's, it's collecting large amounts of data. As a, as a species, we collect about a trillion gigabytes of data every year. Um, and in the ocean, uh, we're about 11 orders of magnitude behind. 11 orders of magnitude. Now, what does that mean? Um, it's very difficult to comprehend with the human mind. But you know, let me give you a simple example that makes it a little easier. Um, if you take the distance from here to the sun, which is about 150 million kilometers, um, and then you know, look at what 11 orders of magnitude of that distance is, like 11 orders of magnitude less, that I would get is about 100 meters uh, on the way to the sun. And so that is the amount of data we collect in the ocean, the first 100 meters, and the rest is basically you know, all the other data we gather. So that is the data gap that we're getting every year. It's compounding. It's not a one-time thing. Every year, we're that far behind. And you know, what that means is that the ocean environment has incredible uh, uncertainties, um, and uncertainties are very expensive. So if the goal is to get to the sun, figuratively speaking, and we've traveled the distance of a football field, that means there remains an enormous distance to travel when it comes to collecting data on our oceans. Yet here we are, sailing ships across the seas, drilling for the oil and gas beneath them, pulling up the bounty of seafoods found within them, and building cities and ports on their edges. So for this episode, we wanted to look at how some actors within the ocean industries are working to close that ocean data gap. And the World Ocean Council, a group focused on corporate responsibility across the ocean industries, wants more companies to get on board. Paul Holthus is chief executive and founder of the group. What we have is uh, an ocean that's 71% of the planet that's not all that well documented and understood. There's a lot of things that we need to know about it in order to better manage it and, and reduce impacts from shipping in other sectors. And on the you know, more positive note, to increase the opportunity for shipping and, and other industries to be playing a, a greater and increased uh, constructive role in addressing the, um, the effects of economic activity on the ocean and more broadly, dealing with the effects of climate change and land-based sources, et cetera, 
on the ocean. And for that, there's a need for data. The, it's expensive and complicated to uh, collect data in the ocean and for the weather and the atmosphere above that ocean, 71% of the planet. Governments support research vessels. Uh, different institutions have their vessels that collect data. There's a, a limit to that, and actually budgets uh, have not been growing to help that happen. Holtus said that the most cost-effective way to get data on the ocean is to use what he calls ships of opportunity to gather it. And that means putting equipment on merchant ships, fishing vessels, and fixed infrastructure at sea for energy and aquaculture. There are shipping companies that are doing that today. Singapore's Swire Shipping, for example, worked with the National Oceanography Center at Southampton University in the UK to outfit one of its ships to collect ocean data on its route in the Pacific, collecting atmospheric data and taking water samples at sea for about a decade until the vessel was eventually scrapped. Now, the company is working with the universities of Hawaii and Stuttgart to outfit a vessel to provide early warnings for tsunamis. With the support of Swire, the World Ocean Council has expanded its Smart Ocean, Smart Industries program, an effort to get more companies in the ocean industries to volunteer their ships, rigs, platforms, and other installations at sea to help record data. This is Simon Bennett, Swire's sustainability advisor. We all know that the 70% of the Earth is, is covered by, by oceans, and there are fewer data recording stations in the oceans and than the, there are on land where it's easier. So the more data that the various meteorological organizations can get from the seas, the better. And that's going to be really important in the second half of this year. We're expecting a super El Nino where the sea temperature increases in certain parts of the, of the world, which causes drought and rain and heat and cool depending on the atmospheric systems uh, globally. So the, the more advanced warning we can have on that, uh, the better, because that affects people's lives in terms of food production, in terms of floods. Um, so it really is essential that that data is where it can be easily um, obtained and forwarded. It's really important to do that. The Smart Ocean Smart Industries program is aiming to expand the number of vessels and platforms collecting standardized ocean weather and climate data at sea, and then share that information. The World Ocean Council is working to identify scientific institutions that need the data and find the companies willing to collect it and share it, and then connecting the two. The program's leaders describe this as an opportunity for shipping companies. With minimum cost at a time when corporate sustainability is increasingly important, they can show that they are implementing the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals in a concrete way. As part of the recent expansion, the World Ocean Council hired Bill Staubey as program manager. A former executive in the marine renewable energy space, he's been reaching out to companies in the ocean industries to tell them about that opportunity. One area where he's been finding early successes is signing up shipping companies to collect and share bathymetric data on their vessels. Bathymetric data is used to map the seafloor, and it's something that ships already use on board for safety reasons. With some minor modifications, that information can be collected in a useful way and transmitted to the IHO, the International Hydrographic Organization. One of the earliest companies that I've been engaged with is a Canadian shipping company that trades in the uh, Canadian Eastern Arctic uh, seasonally. Uh, that doesn't open up until June or July, usually when the ice disappears. But uh, basically, uh, with the help of the Canadian Hydrographic Service, who is desperate, I'll use that term, uh, for additional 
bathymetric data in a region that is uh, not well mapped, if you will, they got on the phone with me and basically said, listen, not only is the World Ocean Council Smart Ocean Smart Industries uh, program uh, soliciting your help in participating in this, but we, the Canadian Hydrographic Service, who the shipping company deals with all the time, uh, supports this as well. And so that helped with the credibility, and uh, ultimately they decided uh, to participate. Um, we're now uh, planning essentially the installation of data loggers and other equipment uh, for communication of the collected data. Um, and uh, so that, that project is moving along. Holtus said this is a win-win. More data makes shipping safer. Bathymetric data can help prevent groundings on uncharted seamounts, and it helps scientists understand ocean current patterns and model circulation. But there's a whole menu of other forms of data that can be collected on ships, and technology to collect it is advancing. That includes data on oceans like salinity and temperature, and there's climate and weather data that's currently collected more readily on land. But if it's so easy, why aren't more ships doing this already? Holtus and Stabi told me that this is in part due to a lack of awareness, and that's something the World Ocean Council is working to address. But companies may also presume that there's a degree of complexity and risk involved in integrating equipment on vessels or having seafarers carrying out data collection tasks. Holtus told me that the companies that have been involved can help dispel these worries. Any operational issues have been worked out, and crew members actually enjoy participating. But when I put the risk question to Swire's Simon Bennett, he highlighted the risks that can be avoided by collecting more data at sea. Just look at the project to make ships part of the Pacific's early warning system for tsunamis. Think back to December 26, 2004, when a powerful earthquake touched off a tsunami that is blamed for the deaths of nearly 228,000 people in 14 countries. From the quake's epicenter, the tsunami raced outward at more than 500 miles an hour. Technology that can be installed on a ship can take out the background noise of wind and waves to detect a tsunami traveling across the ocean. And that can give, for example, 10 hours notice to Pacific nations that a deadly wave is heading their way. The Indian Ocean tsunami killed a quarter of a million people. So one saved life is worth a fair bit of money. A quarter of a million saved lives is worth an absolute fortune. And the cost of this kit will be very, very low, less than 5K. There's one maritime technology company that's aiming to tackle this ocean data gap in a way that's directly serving both science and the ocean industries. Remember Tim Jansen from the start of the episode? He's chief executive and co-founder of SoFar Ocean Technologies. And the company was created with the idea that it could tackle the lack of information about the ocean and weather at sea. SoFar has developed a network of what it calls spotter buoys. They're small, bright yellow buoys that wander around the ocean collecting information. The value of collecting that data is providing a greater ability to predict what's happening at sea to make ocean industries more efficient. Anytime you're operating in a highly uncertain environment, uh, you're going to do inefficient things and you're going to basically waste energy um, and waste money uh, operating there. So basically adding more information, the only way to create more certainty um, is to add more information, measure. You know, it's a very simple thing. Um, but there's no two ways around it. If you are not measuring uh, and you do not know what the, what the state of anything is today, 
You can't predict a future state, which means your uncertainty will just propagate forward in space and time. In shipping, SOFAR has developed a voyage optimization platform that uses this data to supplement traditional weather models and provide predictions that help vessel operators save money on fuel consumption. The outfit recently added two well-known companies in the industry, Starbolt Carriers and Eagle Bulk Shipping, as new customers for the platform. What makes route optimization challenging on the ocean is having the data inputs to make predictions about weather at sea, and having more data makes it possible to make better predictions about which route will reduce fuel consumption and make a voyage more profitable. But at a time when shipping is under pressure to cut its greenhouse gas footprint, that also means reducing emissions. The International Maritime Organization is targeting a 50% cut in shipping emissions by 2050, and it's discussing whether to make that more ambitious by aiming for zero carbon or net zero. There is going to be a range of different technologies that's going to roll out over years and decades. Now, not all of that will be solved today. Um, and not all of it will be solved by ocean data or optimization. Optimization is something that we would always want to do. Um, we can do it right now. It's practically free. Um, and it would reduce immediately, like, you know, three to six percent of our emissions right off the bat. You know, why not do it? The other part, though, and this is a reality I think everybody is aware of, you think a little bit longer, like no matter what we do, shipping will become more expensive. We will use alternative fuels, which are going to be you know, more expensive. We'll use different propulsion methods. And so there's going to be big investments in, in changing how we operate, and that's going to make everything more costly, which means that the value of optimization will go up as well. But so far, Ocean also makes its data available for scientists at no cost. Jansen said the company's founding mission was always to leverage ocean data to make the future more sustainable. And while the company is selling products that use that data, providing that information to the scientific community brings another layer of value. It helps scientists build better models that SOFAR also uses. In the end, what we want to do is to be able to be hyper accurate on like what happens in three days or five days or six days in the ocean so that we can make super accurate predictions. Two components to that, one is a model and the other part is the data put the data into the model that we have today, the model will be better. If you make the model better as well, then you get a double win. And the company is not just open about its data, it also publishes information on its algorithms. And that leads to more collaboration with the scientific community that Jansen said benefits so far. I'll give you an example. We have a, a wind algorithm that basically uses the, uh, the measurement of the, the sea state, the, the roughness, to basically infer uh, what the wind speed and the and and the, the wind direction is. This is very similar to a satellite scatterometer. It's a very, very useful and powerful measurement that we can make at extremely low cost. Uh, we had an original algorithm that was pretty good, um, but it has saturation at high wind speeds. So uh, a group in Japan took that um, and uh, made it better. And they published that and said like, hey, we have an improved algorithm that we now immediately implemented in all our systems. And now basically we benefit from the better algorithm. And not just us, everybody that uses our data benefits from the better algorithm. I wanted to ask Jansen, as an oceanographer and climate tech entrepreneur, what measures should be taken in the future to close the ocean data gap? He said that one mode of data collection will never solve the problem. Satellites, the SOFAR network of spotter buoys, unmanned vehicles, each will never solve it alone. But bringing that all together still has three hurdles. Power, communication, and integration. The need to power devices in the ocean is hard to overcome, but advances in electric vehicles, solar power, and batteries are promising. Communication in remote areas of the ocean is also tough, but there too, new low Earth orbit satellite networks like Starlink are moving things in the right direction. The, the integration part 
is is really hard still. And this is not necessarily on the surface for most people, but uh, you know, marine technology lives in a pre-USB desktop era. And if, if for those of you old enough to remember that, uh, that means that you have to like nothing fits together. Like you know, you you get a plug that looks the same, but the, the pin configuration is different. Um, you got to find your own driver or write it yourself uh, to get it to work. So everything is an engineering project, and that makes it really really difficult to scale. So everything looks like a prototype. It doesn't scale well. And if you bring it to the water and drop it in, you got to bring the person to build it because it, it, it will certainly fail. And that's the only person that can fix it. But there too, efforts are underway. So far as working with the Office of Naval Research and OceanKind to create open standards. In the meantime, if you have a vessel rig or other infrastructure at sea that you'd like to contribute to closing the ocean data gap, the World Ocean Council's Bill Staubey is eager to hear from you. You can find his contact info in the notes for this episode. Here's more on the environment and the business of the ocean. The Green Seas newsletter dug into a case in Maine that is a key test of measures to hold seafarers as witnesses in investigations of pollution from ships. A judge in a case of three seafarers who are suing the U.S. government over their detention is weighing arguments over whether the courts have any power of review over the decision to revoke the passes that would have let the men go ashore from a vessel that was under investigation. Lawyers for the seafarers argued that customs and border protection officials do not have unfettered power to revoke such passes. Sign up to get the newsletter at tinyurl.com slash greenseas. My colleague Lucy Hine reported that French energy giant Total Energies has signed up with a coalition of companies to develop a liquefied hydrogen carrier. The conceptual design envisions a vessel with 150,000 cubic meters of capacity. Partners are containment system designer GTT, ship designer LMG Marine, and classification society Bureau Veritas. Read Lucy's story at tradewindsnews.com. Hydrogen Insight reports that a UK Commission study estimated that some 50% of the country's shipping fuels could be ammonia and green methanol in 2050. Just 2.5% of ships would be powered by batteries, while pure hydrogen will not likely play a role. Read about it at hydrogeninsight.com. Music for this episode is by Nesterug on Pixabay. <laughs>